tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boost by tax day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. Coming up on this week's show, how to play your retro game library on any device. The most random handheld system we've ever seen. A WeChat to Ocean software music legend, Peter Clark. The Retro Hour podcast is brought to you each week with our good mates at Bitmap Books. Now, coming next month, go straight the ultimate guide to side-scrolling beat-em-ups. At over 450 pages, it takes you through over 200 games spanning 37 years with classics like Streets of Rage, Golden Axe, Final Fight, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and lots more, including some obscure brawlers you'll have to try. You can find out more and pre-order right now at bitmapbooks.co.uk. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 309, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And a very warm welcome to this week's show, well into 2022. Now, it does kind of feel like, you know, all the madness of Christmas and New Year is behind us. You know, we've just done the first proper full working week of 2022. I did see on Twitter, actually, a lot of people said over Christmas they finally caught up on all of our episodes from 2021. I think a lot of people just like binge listened to like six months worth of episodes. There's still people starting from the very beginning. So you've got a while to go and hopefully you'll catch up to this when, one. When people do Maybe it in a few weeks. When people do it in chronico- chronological order, they go, who's this Joe guy after a couple of episodes? That's what I always find. <laughs> that does blow my mind. We often get tweets of people going, I've just discovered your podcast. Yeah, I'm listening from episode one. So uh, to all those people that are just listening to episode one now, um, We'll see you in six years, I it's, think. It's, it's good to kind of get in that regular flow, though. How have you guys yeah. found it? Like, back at work, you're like, oh, God. Well, you know, uh, over the holidays, you have a little rest, don't you? Well, I don't want to sit here and rant about my job or anything like that, but I, I only had two days off. <laughs> oh, so you did just savour those two days, Joe. I did. I, you know what? I tell a lie. I had two days off, then I was at work for a day. Then I had two days off, then I was at work for a day. And then I had, like... You slacker. And then I had, like, three days, and then I was back to normal work, so... It was it was a bit of a broken time off, but I did savor it. Thank you, Ravi. How was your how 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 about you, Dan? How are you settling in back back to DJing? Yeah, which, back uh, on the decks. <laughs> back on the decks. Yeah, <laughs> well, that's the thing. I think you know now we're all kind of getting back into the routine, um, and it is quite nice that people are you know sharing their routine with us, and people are commuting again and listening to podcasts while they're working. So it's uh, nice to have people back on board for the new year. And I feel like you know the show we're back into the swing of things now after a couple of weeks off, and uh, we've actually got some incredible guests. I mean, I think at the moment we're just kind of, we're full on recording interviews over the next week now, aren't we? We've got like one yeah, pretty much totally. every other day. We like to be ahead, and it's it's, it's really good. I absolutely loved the episode uh, last week. Everybody like really said it was a good episode and uh, chatting about P- PowerPC, but this week uh, we've got an absolute legend as well. Yeah, now we're going to be going real old school. And actually, we haven't done a music episode for a while. Uh, But when we do episodes about video game music, you know, the Commodore 64, I don't think in terms of, you know, 80s computers, you can beat the sound of the C64. The SID chip 
legendary to this day, isn't it? It's absolutely wonderful. Like a lot of people try and recreate that sound, you know. And uh, the guy we're speaking to today, Peter Clark, he's an absolute legend from Ocean Software. And you know who Ocean Software are. That one of the biggest companies of that era. And he's actually making a new album at the moment. So he's like remixing C64 tunes and there's going to be a load of people on there. He's been on the remixing scene, but he's also got a great history at this company. So we're going to talk all about it, the games he kind of worked on and just like the relationships he had. It's a fantastic interview. Really had fun today. You know, we always like getting, you know, Ocean to me, I remember, you know, getting their games as a kid and they always seem like you know such a big glamorous company and i love it when we find out these inside stories because i mean there's a lot of surprises often when we you know it wasn't quite as glamorous as we imagined it was but also i mean you're right he's got this new album coming out at the end of the month it's called encore 64 and he's working with them and if you're into the c64 music scene some real a-listers on here guys like you know romeo knight who we've had on the show before danko uh vincenzo loads of people on here as well and the remix some classics like bubble Bob which, you know, we obviously did um, when he was at Ocean, the music for that, uh, some of the um, Ocean Loaders too. And actually the album, um, I'll put a link in our show notes and I'll play a little montage that you kindly made us at the end. They've kind of remixed them and uh, turned them into a real eclectic mixture of genres. So you've got stuff yeah. like, you know, synth, synth and retro wave, obviously, but there's also stuff like a country and folk and prog rock and metal, you know, there's it's all like kinds of genres. All the it. stuff, you know, you had the Sid chip before when you were limited. Like mm. all of the stuff with the remixes is we've got no limits. Let's just totally take yeah. it to the next level and use these kind of tunes as inspiration. And there's a whole scene about remixing C64 tunes, but also Amiga tunes as well. Yeah, so we'll talk to uh, Peter Clark, the Ocean Software music legend on the show in around half an hour from now. Now, it does kind of feel like we're still catching up on the news headlines from last year. There is still a lot of stories to get through. This one, though, I thought was really interesting. This is a hidden SNES emulator that was in a GameCube game. Now, are you guys familiar with um, Nesticle? I wasn't until today. And as it turns out, apparently it's quite a legendary emulator, uh, to yeah. say the least. Which, you know, I, I, I was big into emulation, emulation when I was a teenager. Um, I used SNES ROM, spelt with a Z. So I, I'm not familiar with this one, but there's a lot of chat about it at the moment, isn't there? Well, this is by a guy called um, Isa Addis mm. of a Bloodlust Software now at Nesticle, which was always a name that stuck in my head for uh, obvious reasons, because <laughs> you know, it's a knob joke, essentially. Uh, but this was, it was the first freeware NES emulator, very widespread on DOS and Windows. I think that was developed until around 98, 99. Uh, but actually, he went to work with a few big gaming companies. Um, back in the day, he used to hang around on IRC. That's kind of, he got the nickname Sardu. That's where people mm. might know him from. Uh, but then he went to work um, with EA. And there is a game on there, which was, uh, <laughs> it was a boxing game, which I must admit, boxing games are not really my thing. But there's a game called um, Fight Night Round 2 that came out by EA on the GameCube in 2005. And in there, there is a fully playable version of Super Punch-Out from the Super Nintendo. But actually, it turns out, the way they implemented that is it was a follow-up to Nesticle called Snesticle. So it is a full emulator that was hidden in this game just to play that little Easter egg. It makes me laugh how, like, these developers, you know, go to such lengths to put these little things in. You know, like, as a player, you would think, oh, yeah, that's funny, you complete the game and you unlock, you know, this old game to play. But the amount of effort that goes into it, that he's had to make, like, an entire 
program <laughs> like, well, yeah. to do it. Um, it's just absolutely crazy. But yeah, to, to find this, hasn't it been like an absolute like minefield to actually find it, Ravi? Yeah, well, for this, we have the uh, US National Security Agency to yeah. thank because <laughs> they, crazy. they couldn't get into that code, basically. Yeah. Um, and the way that they got into the code was um, basically it got leaked uh, a lot of hacking tools that the National Security Agency actually used in uh, 2017. So there was a hacking group called the Shadow Brokers that actually leaked this tool. And you may remember the WannaCry virus that went around the world and caused mm. absolute chaos that was also part of the eternal blue so we've got a lot to thank for this <laughs> leak now one of these tools was a, a reverse engineering tool uh, so they'd obviously use this to you know hack things and find bits of hidden code in areas but um this code's actually now been applied to this game and then they've used it to be able to reverse engineer it and then extract this uh, copy of nesticle and basically get it running which is pretty amazing to see that they're using some pretty hardcore government hacking tools to uh, crack a, a copy of a game and, and get like Super Punch Out running. <laughs> it's pretty mad. Well, they've ran more than just that as well. So there is, um, I'll, I'll link the website up in the show notes. So there is, um, as I mentioned before, this thing called the uh, Synestical Liberation Project. So they've actually tried running a lot of other Super oh, Nintendo okay, games so on here because it's reversed engineered. They've probably managed to modify it and then you know. Well, they've uh, extracted uh, it from the game. Yeah, yeah. standalone now. They've yeah, got it running on its own and run extra stuff on there. Uh, but now there's actually a lot of other people that have got involved in this. So what they want to turn it into is obviously they've got the the emulator there now running. You know, extracted from the the boxing game. So now there's actually a project um, where they want to get like a front end for choosing different Super Nintendo ROMs. They want to save um, the SRAM to a GameCube memory card. They want to have two joystick support in there as well. Wow. Um, they also want to do a native Wii port of it, because obviously the Wii could run game GameCube um, games fine. And they also want to do like a full disassembly. That's kind of the goals of the project so far. Mm. Uh, so, <laughs> I mean, there's not much point to this. I can't imagine many people are going to actually get a mini CD ROM and, you know, burn a load of Super Nintendo ROMs to run on a console that's now 20 years old. But it's just cool the fact that there was actually a full emulator hidden inside this, um, you know, relatively, you know, I wouldn't say obscure game, but one that's not really well regarded, you know. I've, no, I've never played Fight but, Night um, Round 2. It might be amazing, but... It's saying that the way that they actually get it to run is they don't remove the game. Uh, right. They disable the original game, basically, and then okay, yeah, allow yeah. it to run this kind okay. of stuff with a Python script. So the original game is still kind of there, but they're just like pushing this other one in there. <laughs> so, I, 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 I love that one of the quotes about it is like, it's not even going to be that amazing once they get it all up and running and stuff like that. Yeah. Like like you say, there's not much point to it, but it's just because it's, it's the sequel to Nesticle. Like, you know, yeah. if it came out in like 1997... Like it would have blown their minds, but in 2022, you know, well, 2005, but where they're ripping it from, like it's just like let's just do it for the fun of it, um, which I think is half of the articles on our show anyway. Um, but what's interesting is they need to they need to test it further to see if Mode Seven works on it because of Super yeah, yeah. Punch Out didn't really use any Mode Seven graphics. Um, well, it was only made for that game, I guess. Wasn't yeah. It? It was later. So that that'll be interesting to see. But I'm sure in the next couple of weeks we'll probably get more information on it and have Doom running on it and stuff like that. It's amazing <laughs> how these kind of games that have mini games in them are starting to mm. 
produce like the time splitters one that we talked about yeah and you know uh they're starting to produce standalone titles and people are starting to kind of remove them and it's just amazing that like an afterthought really uh becomes well, the, the the main appeal later on one of my first thoughts when we were talking about this just now is on the metal gear solid 3 hd edition uh for the xbox 360 and ps3 you get metal gear solid 2 and 3 the ps2 mm-hmm. games but you also get a uh, unlockable version of Metal Gear 1 and 2 for the MSX in the game. Oh, nice. So now I'm interested to see if there's like a full-on MSX emulator in the game. Like, yeah, you, need so, to, you need to get the government NSA tools on that. Yeah, <laughs> it's probably already been done, to be fair. Uh, Some people yeah. probably tell us in the com- comments that that's an old story, but, you know, it, it is super interesting to see that these, these, like, all this emulation go, you know, gets is in there whereas when you kind of play it you just don't appreciate that you're just like oh yeah they just probably dragged the game and dropped it on the disc or something but that is far from how it works yeah we're gonna get ravi on the case this weekend and his uh his guy forks mask back in the code. <laughs> i don't dare touch that mate <laughs> <laughs> doors get in you know well we've talked about you know and stream before which um obviously we're all big fans of you know getting to play um retro games on um any system streaming them this is really cool, though. This new um, product is kind of like an open-source version of AntStream that works with your own collection of ROMs. Now, I've got to give a shout to um, Ashley, one of our patrons, uh, Smash, in our Discord, who shared this with me. This is a thing called Web Arcade. Have you guys had a look at this? This looks like it could be a game-changer for playing your retro it gaming collection. great, yeah. <laughs> I, I was going to say, I've had a look at it, but am I right in thinking, so it's not streaming, but it's using your URL? To play so web-based games, but the game re- is stored on a kind of cloud system. Yeah, that's on Dropbox. Yeah, you're creating a feed that will then feed into the browser, but also you can then extract that onto your phone or anything like that. And because it's open source, um, that means that you know it. Obviously, there'll be there could be applications for it and stuff like that. But you could you could have it on a Dropbox, yeah, probably on a Google Drive or something. It's 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 basically like do you remember the archive.org one where they had uh they had games that were hosted on there, DOS games and stuff like that. It's basically that, but you can change all the settings in it. Because you're putting this feed in, you can put custom icons, you can um change like the way that it's displayed, you can add overlays in there and stuff. So it allows you to have that customization settings all kind of pre done on your own little personal feed. And it looks really good. I mean, there is, if you go to um, play.webarcade.com, it's um, arcade without the A, so it's web, letter R, K.com. There's actually a bunch of emulators in there. They've actually loaded it up with um, quite a lot of, you know, abandonware and kind of freeware games in there, so you can try it out straight away. But yeah, pretty much what you said then. So what you do is you load your ROMs onto Dropbox, um, and then you can connect it to your login on here, and then you can basically play your own ROMs on pretty much any device hmm. that has a web browser. Oh, wow. So at the moment, it can run Atari 2600, 7800, um, NES, Super Nintendo, Game Boy, Game Boy Color, Game Boy Advance, uh, SG-1000, Master System, Mega Drive, Game Gear, Classic Doom, stuff like that can run on here too. And there is a video, a it's kind of the official tutorial, um, a guy called Russ from uh, the channel retro game corpse and he's done this really in-depth video i think the video is around 25 minutes long but really if you just watch the first two or three minutes you'll get the gist of it he kind of goes in depth and you know it's like a proper tutorial on how to set it up but it looks very straightforward and one thing i love is he's playing a load of like um mega drive games and stuff on here and then he reveals that actually 
he's playing them all on an Xbox One in the Edge browser. Nice, yeah. Oh, wow. you, can, you can do it on the modern browsers, yeah. I guess mm. it would be anything that kind of supports what it needs, which is probably like HTML5. But um, for a while, we had this thing where you would, on the Amiga, you would mount a, uh, like a Google Drive or something and you'd have it mounted and then you could just use that. And I think this idea of remote play and remote storage, because you're not really kind of sending that much information. It's, it's getting the Robin image and then playing it locally within your browser. So it's not like yeah. AntStream where you say streaming something from a remote location, which works well because of high scores of competing and doing like custom competitions and stuff. But this is a very kind of personal thing where you can customize it as much as you want to be your personal experience and being open source people might make plugins and add-ons on this that you know make it do specific stuff on certain games or you know you could have a mortal kombat add-on that did weird things with all the mortal kombat games and you know getting those copies of different people's feeds and stuff i, I like the idea that it's open source and everyone can kind of play with it and what's really good is, I mean, it kind of, you know, recently, I don't know if you heard the news about the, um, on the Xbox One, like disabled the developer mode that yeah, a lot of people yeah. were using, you know, to emulate old systems. So the timing on this couldn't be better, really, because it kind of means you don't even have to hack or mod any of your systems to play retro games on them. And even, you know, the, the showing, um, showing it on the iPhone here as well, uh, which, you know, the iPhone is kind of notoriously difficult, you know, to get emulators on because, you know, Apple don't generally approve them. So it is really handy. I love the fact as well that you can play your own game collections on it. And there's already quite a decent, I mean, you know, you've got Super Nintendo, Mega Drive and stuff. It's really up, and, up until like the 16-bit era at the mm. moment. But they're saying, I mean, there's going to be, I reckon stuff like PlayStation, Nintendo 64 will be coming soon as well. But like you said, Ravi, I mean, you're playing it locally in your browser. You think of a Mega Drive ROM, they're only about four megabytes. Yeah. And you're not so paying not much for anything download. as well. No, you know, exactly. It's, yeah. it's, it's all free. And I think that's pretty awesome, you know, that you can... Just use your collection and use it on any devices. You probably do this on your iPad. Yeah, they've got it running on an iPhone here. So it's, um, yeah, I think that's really awesome. And the kind of thing that, you know, it's one of those things that until you see it, you're like, yeah, why didn't someone do this years ago? It makes total sense. You know, really like freeze your, your ROM collection, doesn't it? The amount of times I've moved to different systems and re-downloaded the same ROM packs over and oh, over God. and over again. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, very cool. If you want to get um, involved in that, it is available right now. And I'll link it up. Like Ravi said, it's open source, completely free. Uh, you just need your ROM collection, which I'm sure you own legally. And I'll, I'll link that up in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, new Amiga releases. Always gets pretty excited, don't they, Ravi? Uh, what about this? A game that was originally produced by Konami for the MSX has now made its way to the Amiga, thanks to our good friend, Hoffman. Yeah, so we had Hoffman on the show last time, and... Uh... He's an absolute legendary musician, so we did we did an episode with Hoffman. But he's also actually doing some really amazing ports, and these are ports from the MSX. But you know they're 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 really well done for the Amiga. And he also does a, a little great thing. So he did Metal Gear before, yeah. And uh, he kind of Hoffmanizes the tunes. Is that a word? <laughs> you know, he, he makes them like mega bumpy and like kind of adds stuff in, but then tries to do as arcade accurate ports as possible and i haven't played this game before it looks pretty cool though so this was um it was an msx exclusive back in the day yeah i believe it was only on msx and it came out in 1986 
it's like a it, it's got it's got a really cool soundtrack uh like ravi said and it, it it's called nightmare it looks like a really scary game from the title screen but one it's like a you know a big ominous like castle and it's all dark and creepy but once you actually get into it it's essentially a um a shooter you know like a top-down yeah. shooter but you're walking along and you're at night like shooting spears but it's actually it's got a really nice kind of bright <laughs> look to it and it's got a really 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 bright color palette and it, it it has got to me it looks like a classic kind of master system game graphically yeah. but it looks like it's running beautifully uh on the amiga here but apparently he's fully 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 dis- disassembled the game to ensure yeah. that it's completely accurate to the original um and then there is a little bit of remastering that in there as well just to kind of like get that higher quality you know amiga enhanced sound effects and you know enhanced uh, images and stuff like that but it does look beautiful and it's so fast as well from what i've seen it's a really fast game to play and mm. like with amiga there was a lot of ports back in the days that weren't good and that were yeah. slow and that were like lower quality and stuff this one runs on like anyone with 512k ram like you know low end compatible amigas and runs well and uh yeah it's just lovely to see and like all the graphics being remastered like you said and you know you can save to disc and he's got 50 and 60 um hertz as well which he's, is pretty he's, cool he's done some good wizardry with the uh the screen moving up as well like if you watch it closely i don't i don't know how to describe it it doesn't look the smoothest but he's done a good job of it if you watch the video of like the screen scrolling upwards automatically and I think, you know, when we see more ports like this coming along from talented developers, it kind of shows you kind of what could have been done with the hardware back in the day. Mm. Because, I mean, a lot of those, like Ravi mentioned, a lot, we had a lot of crap arcade ports on the Amiga in particular, many of them from the Atari ST, who, you know, mm. they just didn't really modify them for the Amiga hardware or anything like that. But it shows it with, you know, someone who knows the hardware and actually has the time to put into doing a decent port, you know. And I think we're seeing this more and more with, you know, ports to retro systems, just how good the hardware can actually be made on. You know, minimum requirements that this can run on a, an unexpanded Amiga 500. This is, this is you know, the thing. Blows my mind. Like, the Amiga scene for a long time was aiming for these high-end, you know, yeah. accelerated ones. And now you've got, like, a Doom clone running on the 500. You've got, like, MSX games, uh, amazing demos. And it's, like, actually hitting that, low end is just wow so impressive and it's kind of like yeah i wish they'd done it back in the day uh, to have that time machine but uh i would have taken hoffman back with me in the time in the delorean <laughs> said, right. sold him to cygnosis or something yeah. <laughs> uh, and if you want to support him as well he's actually because like you said i'm in the soundtrack being a you know prolific amiga musician um he's actually put the soundtrack up on Bandcamp. so if you want to support him you can uh, buy his soundtrack on there as well and if you want to give that a download, I'll, I'll link that up in our show notes too. Version uh, 1.0 is available now. He's even put the uh, the Pro Tracker mods out there as well, so you can download them and play them in that, which I think I'm is pretty cool. I'm going to be DJing with those for sure. Now, obviously, we've had Christmas recently. Anyone else got heartbreaking memories of opening a Tiger Electronics handheld, usually from Grandma, because she knew you were into video games? <laughs> you never know, one of those on Christmas morning? I did have one as a child. Uh, I think it was a Tetris one. And whenever well, that, I, that was a decent one, actually, was, compared yeah. to the ones I had. Whenever I'd play any sort of handheld around my... And it was from my nan. And whenever I took... I used to take, like, my Game Boy and then my Game Boy Advance. And she always goes, is that the one I got? Yeah. And you just like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, and I remember her saying that once when I had my Game Boy Advance with me. 
which segues nicely into the uh, the Game Boy Advance Tiger, the Tiger Game Boy Advance that has uh, come to light this week uh, by modder and creator Chris Downing. Um, but it, it's not, it's very cool. I don't want to call it a Frankenstein's monster, but it's a bit of a, a mis- mishmash of a Game Boy Advance and an original Tiger handheld, isn't it? Yeah, so what he's done, this video kind of shows you the process of him ripping apart one of these old um, Tiger Electronics games and kind of forcing the motherboard of a Game Boy Advance into there as well with a few um, modifications. But really what it is at heart is, it is one of the old Tiger Electronics games that you can play decent video games on for a change. I like that he's got a Game Boy Advance in there, but I still want that LCD kind of look in there. I don't know if he'd be able to do that. It's an IPS screen, isn't it? Yeah, so it's an IPS screen and, you know, it's got the original Game Boy Advance innards in there. So it's all proper Game Boy Advance hardware. It's not a Raspberry Pi or anything like that. Um, But what's quite interesting is the actual, the Tiger handheld, I thought like, you know, this looks a little bit bigger bigger than the the normal Tiger handhelds. And I am right uh, from watching the video. He's, the the bottom half of it is the original Tiger handheld, but then he's... The D-pad and the speaker. Yeah, the the D-pad, the speaker and the, the A and B button. But then the top of it is actually a 3D printed that like that he's done with his own, you know, um, dimensions and stuff like that Mm. um, to make sure that the Game Boy Advance kind of fits in there. Because obviously there's a lot more going on in the Game Boy Advance than there ever was in those Tiger handhelds. Um, But he's done a really smart job of it. And it looks like a full on release. When I first saw it, I thought it was like an actual kind of like it's the Game Boy Advance one that's coming out and it's emulation on it and stuff like that. But he's got like a custom printed like border around there as well with like Earthworm Gin on Gin on it and uh, you know Super Mario World and Doom guys even on there as well, which is really cool. But yeah, essentially, long story short, it's just a Game Boy Advance shoved into an old Tiger handout. <laughs> but but also, it? he's he's put USB C charging on there, which is pretty cool. So oh, that works. Good, it works to your modern standards. Yeah. Oh, nice. That is good. Well, this is a guy we talked about um, last year who put the the N sixty four into a handheld. Oh yeah. Um, which, you know, he does all of these wild and weird and wacky kind of hardware modifications. And again, <laughs> it kind of goes back to the thing we mentioned before about the GameCube and the, the SNES emulator. There's no reason at all why you'd ever want to do this just because you can. Yeah. Would he ever want to play a Game Boy Advance game using that D-pad and those action buttons? <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> well so would i but sane people probably wouldn't exactly <laughs> so. exactly well, well hopefully they'll get they'll come to market and i'll get one for christmas from my nan next year and maybe- well, did we say last year that they're actually re-releasing the the tiger handhelds i think they're back out now yeah aren't you, you can get new ones you can get a sonic free one and stuff like that from xavi yeah. and like an x-men one so they are they are making a comeback a whole new generation of kids will probably disappointed <laughs> over christmas maybe or- one day uh he can get like my failed console, the uh, Switch, and put it into another failed yeah. console, the Virtual yeah. Boy, and create yeah, the, yeah, ultimate yeah. Machine, <laughs> yeah, the ultimate failure. So if maybe you were uh, unfortunate enough to get a, a Tiger Electronics game over Christmas, you want to do something cool with it, then uh, we'll put that video in there for you. Uh, I've got the skills to copy it. It looks very cool. You find all our show notes at theratchethour.com or just uh, check your podcast client. Now, this is an interesting game. Are you guys familiar with uh, a game called, um, something I'd not heard of, Racing Lagoon. Now, this was a game from uh, back in the late 90s that we never got over here and actually looked quite innovative for the time, despite the fact it didn't get great reviews. Yeah, I, I'd never heard of this until today. Um, mm. So it comes from Square Enix. 
Or just square as it was back then. square as it was back then. Or are they square soft now? I can't remember. But the game itself makes sense. So, you know, cast your mind back to 1999. You know, the two best-selling original PlayStation games were Gran Turismo and Final Fantasy VII that both sold, like, just over 10 million units. And then third and fourth was uh, Gran Turismo 2 and Final Fantasy VIII. So, you know... The concept of this game makes sense. You know, Square did the Final Fantasy games. So it is a, it's a, not an arcade racer. It's a um, simulation racer RPG. So it's Gran Turismo with RPG elements in it, but it bombed and it just never came to the Western audience. They just kept it in Japan. And, you know, like you said, for 99, it had really, really nice graphics. And it does literally look like, Gran Turismo at a glance if you said oh that's Gran Turismo I'd go oh yeah cool and then all of a sudden you know the next screenshot is you've got these proper really anime looking Final Fantasy 8 looking characters with the big hair you know with the text boxes and everything and it just looks like that really 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 classic you know square visuals for like you know PlayStation Um, but this has recently been after what 22 years 23 years sorry it's been translated by the fans for a Western audience, finally. Well, I'm not that much of a gearhead, but um, kind of this could really appeal nowadays. I know a lot of people that are into cars, are into the kind of Japanese races and the whole street racing scene and stuff like that. Mm. I don't know what it was like back then, but uh, yeah, maybe it was just overshadowed by like Gran Turismo and people, you know, trying to get that better graphics fidelity and stuff, which uh, you look at it now and it's like, oh. <laughs> well, I, I think now that the gaming audiences are a lot more open to kind of, you know, JRPG kind of elements, which there weren't as, I mean, I think maybe players, there was always a niche of it back in the 90s, but I think a lot of companies were nervous about releasing that kind of game to Western audiences because they didn't have, didn't have faith in it. Yeah, and, you know, it was often, you know, kind of pre-PlayStation, you know, we barely got Final Fantasy games you know, especially mm. in the UK and stuff like that. So, but I feel it, it's weird because 1999, we were becoming very accepting of like JRPGs. So it, it, it is strange that it bombed so badly, but, I, you know, was it was it the reviews that made it bomb or was it generally good reviews and it just didn't sell well? Do, do we know the story there? Yeah, well, well, I'll tell you, the story of the game itself is it's um, you're a member of a, a street racing team in um, Yokohama in Japan. Okay as you try and learn about your forgotten past with a mysterious race that took place 10 years before the game starts. So like you said, I mean, there's a lot of um, RPG elements in here as well. When it came out, though, it actually didn't get very good reviews in Japan. The only thing they praised is the soundtrack, and it had this um, really cool kind of jazz techno fusion soundtrack that actually was that good. They released it as a standalone album. Oh, wow. Um, So that was, you know, probably the the best thing that came out of it. Um, I think looking at the reviews, it just wasn't really understood. I think it was maybe a little bit too ahead of its time. And you're kind of mashing that racing and RPG element. A lot of the reviewers didn't really get why they'd done that. But over the last couple of decades, it's actually now become a real cult game in Japan. Despite the fact, I think it only sold around um, 140,000 copies. So, I mean, it's quite a rare game now. Yeah. But then there's actually, um, you know, Famitsu magazine that we've talked about before, which is a huge gaming mag over there. It was actually voted in their top 50 for the most wanted sequels by readers back in 2009. So, you know, over like since it got released, there's actually 
a team of hardcore fans of this game who really like it. And then um, last summer, there's a game hacker who um, he goes by the name of Hilltop on Twitter, mm. and he announced that he wanted to do an English translation of the game. So what, what he's done is he's gone through and replaced all the Japanese dialogue with English. He's even changed all the um, the full motion videos and cutscenes as well. Um, they've got like English subtitles kind of baked into them. He's reworked all the menus and stuff in there as well. But actually looking at it, the the, the way it works is reading the story of the game, it was all kind of <laughs> quite cryptic and quite poetic in many ways. So it's probably quite a difficult game to do a translation from Japanese to English, actually. That doesn't surprise me because Square mm. could be like that sometimes. Yeah, very surreal sometimes. Yeah, All your so. base are belong to us. Yeah, in that vein. But yeah, I mean, it, I just, for me, it just, it, it looks like, you know, the chemistry is there. It, sh- it should have been a hit. Maybe that's why I'm not on the board at Square. You know, for, you know with the, <laughs> approving these games and stuff like that. Um, you know, Final Fantasy fused with Gran Turismo in 1999. It, it, it should have been a hit, but it's cool, you know, that somebody's done that and, you know, we can play it now in English if we want to. Yeah, and you can give it a download. It's on um, romhacking.net, which I'll, uh, I'll link up in our show notes. If you want to download the ISO file, if you've got a, a chip PlayStation, you can play it on there. I think it looks gorgeous, though. You know, even yeah. though I'm not a massive RPG, I do love racing games. Yeah, I was going to say, I thought of you with Ridge Racer and stuff when I was looking yeah. at it. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I'm interested in this. I think I'll give it a download. So, um, I'll link that up in the show notes and everything else we talked about. You'll find it all at theretrohour.com. And of course, that is a place as well. If you enjoy our podcast, you can support us via Patreon. And we know that January can be a bit of a difficult time. A lot of people got paid a bit early before Christmas and you might have that big long stretch until the end of the month. But, you know, if you have got a couple of quid, a couple of dollars, a couple of euros floating around, it always really helps to um, just put a little bit into our tip jar. Think of it that way. We put it back into the running of the podcast. And actually around this time of year, you know, January, all of our bills get renewed. So it is a month where our bank account takes a bit of a hammering, so uh, any help we get, we massively appreciate it. And we're not all take, take, take. We give back as well, don't we, Joe? We try to give back. So we do do every month our uh, extra podcast, which is the uh, the Retro Hour After Hours, um, where we kind of take it behind the scenes a little bit and give a little bit more of kind of like our opinions on a few things. Because a lot of people like to, you know, ask, what's your favourite game, Dan, or you know, what was your childhood like growing up, you know, with games, Ravi, and stuff like that. So we, we kind of go in into that a lot more. You know, my favourite episodes of that when we do the retro years, which I think we yeah, do one of those, aren't we? we? Are where we focus on one year. Yeah, we, we focus on one year, and it's kind of like a little bit like where we were in gaming in like 2002 or 1997 and stuff like that, which is really, really fun to do. Um, but we also do ad-free episodes, so, you know, you don't have to, you know, listen to all the ads in the show, which I know not everybody likes. Um, and we also do our monthly Patreon hangout as well, which mm. is really just like Ravi said it before. It's like going down to the pub with your mates and just talking about what retro games have you been playing this month and, you know, what things you've been buying and stuff like that. But it's also become like a real kind of like users group because we all help each other out with like our random retro tech and how to fix it and stuff like that. And I always really, really look forward to that. I think we do one of them again in the next week yeah. or two as well. You know, actually, do you not think that the hangouts just get better every month? Yeah, absolutely. They keep getting bigger and bigger. And, you know, it's crazy to think that sometimes that people actually want to come and talk to us and hang out and stuff like that. But, you know, it's not just talking to us. Everybody really just gets involved. And, you know, it's always fun just to kind of like, you know, it's a bit of an an initiation that people come on and kind of show their retro rooms as well, which is always really fun. 
<laughs> so if you'd like to join us for the next hangout we have got one coming up in the next couple of weeks obviously i'll uh i'll put the link in our patreon as well if you want to get access to the after hours podcast just help out this show as well you know that's the main reason that we ask you to do it It can be you know as cheap as a cup of coffee once a month and of course you will get a mention in the most prestigious high score table in the world of retro gaming the retro hour hall of fame and we want to say a huge thank you to our patrons this month thank you to mike ward stefano zambon richard Halling. Matthew Martin and Tyler Catlin who all join us on Patreon we massively appreciate your support and if you'd like to do the same you'll find all that on our show notes at theretrohour.com now just before we get into our chat with music legend from Ocean Peter Clark let's take a second to give a big thank you to a supporter of the Retro Hour podcast and a new one as well this is our mates from One Shot Energy. So massive thank you to them for sponsoring this week's episode. Now, if you're not familiar with them, they are kind of the official candy company of video gaming. Now, their first product are these awesome little candy chews that have a full energy formula in every piece. And I know, Joe, you're kind of our uh, our energy drink guy normally. You know, that's what gets you through the day. I must admit, I'm a total caffeine fiend. Get through about eight cups of coffee a day at least, I think, normally. (laughs) You you hit the nail on the head there. I am a complete an utter caffeine addict and i'm not gonna lie i really 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 don't like hot drinks i don't drink coffee mm. i don't drink tea so i am an energy drink guy and my wife absolutely hates it do you know how bad they are for you do you know how bad they are for your teeth the amount of sugar that's in them well this is the answer to her prayers for me <laughs> this is absolutely amazing so like this this is like a single shot of like energy in a chew like in candy mm. form in a, in a sweet form for us Brits, um, which is absolutely perfect for me because there's only 20 calories per piece and there's 75 milligrams of caffeine uh, in one piece as well, which is just absolutely incredible for me. I mean, I'm, I'm a dad, you know, I've got a full-time job. We do the podcast as well, which in itself is a full-time job. And I also, I like to go to the gym and run around and stuff as well. So it's absolutely perfect for me and it's perfect for my wife to stop having a go at me as well. And especially when you want to beat her in a competitive game as well, Joe. Well, absolutely. There <laughs> is that as well. <laughs> take take one of these. no. Well, I think, like you said, then you mean your energy drinks are often filled with all kinds of crap in there. The mm. thing about once your energy is, and there's no filler, no artificial sweeteners in there, no sugar, no alcohol, no formulas, nothing like that. You've got the caffeine in there and additional focus, eye health, antioxidant supplements in there as well, all in a single chew. Kind of like a now and later, but with a massive kick as well. So really good if you're gaming as well and you want Mm. to focus so um with only 20 calories costing less than 60 cents a piece they're an awesome quick tasty way an alternative to those energy drinks and shots as well so why don't you give it a try Uh, thanks to our friends at one shot energy they've actually given us a massive discount you can get 15 percent off your order help support the podcast as well all you have to do is go to their website which is oneshotenergy.com that is number one shotenergy.com and use our exclusive code retro i'll put the link in the show notes as well and uh, support the podcast try one shot energy see what you think and a massive thank you to one shot energy for their support of the retro hour all right time to talk ocean software the music of some legendary games and this incredible new album that's coming out at the end of this month the fantastic encore 64 with our guest this week peter clark is next on the retro hour podcast Yo, 
You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast, and it is time for our favourite part of the show where we welcome on our very special guest. Now, we love talking about Ocean Software, of course, one of the most legendary British software companies back in the day. We've done episodes with guys like, you know, Gary Bracey's been on. We've had the late Bob Wakelin on. We've had some legends from Ocean on. And we love getting those inside stories. And actually, our guest today was one of the best musicians from the Commodore 64 era. Worked at Ocean Software, working with guys like Martin Galway as well. Big part of the Remix 64 scene. And actually has a new album coming out at the end of this month called Encore 64, which we'll get into. And lots of history about Ocean and the 80s in the video games industry, I'm sure. Let's welcome on our guest this week the amazing peter clark hello peter hello how are you yeah good good i'm I, I i'm good yeah yourself yeah very good thank you now um like, like i mentioned then we love getting stories from ocean and i know you uh you spent a good amount of time there and i'm sure you've got some uh some good behind the scenes stories but i mean kind of going back to to day one i mean obviously you're known for um you know video game music i mean was it like a, a certain video game soundtrack that kind of opened your ears to the genre then, like one defining thing that got you into it initially? There was a defining thing, but it was probably the opposite um, right. of, what, of what you've just said. It was listening to some uh, absolutely dreadful, poor uh, accompanying music to the game, Sing, sometimes single-channel synth music, um, certainly three voices not being exploited as uh, as well as they could. And it was just a, a big-headed opinion on my part of thinking, I can do better. I can do better right. than that. Um, so that was kind of what started me off looking at trying initially to write music um, at home on the 64 uh, and come up with something reasonably good. You, you must have had a background in uh, music then and also like uh, some maybe formal training. What kind of instruments did you play and uh, what stuff did you do with real Real instruments rather than C64. <laughs> There's a phrase, real music. Um, <laughs> it was, it, yeah, I mean, I'd played in bands uh, since about 1978 and kind of got Commodore 64 in the early 80s, quite early on after they came out. So from kind of about 83, 84 to 80, 85, I was messing about with the Commodore 64 from a musical point of view. Nothing that would stand on its own two feet. Uh, but musically, I mean, I was a, a bass player initially, but then a keyboard player and then a guitarist. And that's the kind, that's the kind of path that I'd taken. And I would probably at the stage of coming to the end of playing keyboards in a band and just beginning to play guitar in bands when, when the kind of epiphany happened that, that let me really get to grips with music on the Commodore 64. Well, you mentioned that you got the 64 early there. And obviously the 64, I mean, it was probably, I mean, it was the best out of that era for music, that Sid chip in there. Oh, without um, doubt. Was that, was that the reason that you chose the 64 then, or was that a happy accident that it just had the best sound chip in there <laughs> and you had it? Completely no. Um, I, I was just looking for a games machine and looking at the three of them, the C64 definitely had the edge. The synthesizer, the Sid chip part of it might have been kind of the last little weight that tipped the balance in its favour when I was looking at which one to buy but it was just more you looked at the graphics for what they were versus the graphics on the spectrum versus the graphics i mean the amstrad was reasonably good graphically but the c64 obviously had the edge from a sound point of view as well so it was kind of looking and picking the complete package how how important was like the community around it because um 
we'll talk in a sec about blue chip store where you were hanging in Wigan, but were, sure. were, were you also like working on magazines and taking code out of there and kind of getting info on programs from there? Yeah, a, a little bit. Um, I, I, I mean, the real revolution was SAP 64. Um, and that did that didn't come along straight away. That uh, I, um, that was it was kind of mid eighties before that that emerged, um, and then you could kind of read with some degree of confidence whether a game was a good game, whether it was one that was worth shelling your your money out on. But prior to that, you were literally just going off the artwork on the cassette case. <laughs> you know, you walk in and just pick one up after the other. Oh yeah, that looks good. I love that one. Um, and and it really was just kind of a blind choice based on the artwork on on the cassette early on i didn't have a disk drive um so it was cassettes that i was i was kind of buying early on the 1541 disk drive came a little bit further down the line after i'd gone to ocean and i was i was sort of working at ocean and playing in bands and uh, and earning reasonable money and you know, with disposable income to kind of go, right, I'll shell out on a disk drive, drive, I'll shell out on a proper Commodore 64 monitor. Because those disk drives were like the price of the computer, weren't they? They were, yeah. I mean, they were ridiculous initially. I I mean, please don't ask me to remember 36, 37 years ago what I paid. (laughs) Uh, I'm not going to remember. But I mean, I remember, yeah, they were hellishly expensive. You mentioned, uh, Ravi touched on a blue chip Mm. in Wigan. So tell us a bit about blue chip then, what it was and why that was kind of important to you. Okay. Um, It was was kind of the best store for C64 games. You you sort of had your, your... your chain stores in Wigan, so Woolworths were quite big at selling um, computer games um, uh, uh, and others. Um, other, other stores are also available, so you see <laughs> the BBC line. Um, but Blue Chip was kind of an independent, uh, and and they were completely into C64 stuff in a big, big way. And the the, the, happens, the happy happenstance with Blue Chip computers was after probably more than 12 months of going into the store and buying just as a customer um with but with this secret kind of ambition to find the right the right software that would unlock the SID chip and kind of every every music pr- uh, program every piece of music software it was always in a bigger box it always cost more money and it always promised to be kind of Rick Wakeman in a box um and it never was it, they were all garbage and then I just one weekend, one Saturday, I'd gone in uh, and got chatting to a young lad. I, I mean, at the time, I would have been 27, 28, and he would have been just 18 or 19. And we got chatting, and he worked there at weekends. And he turned me on to this piece of software and said, buy this. This is called Electrosound. This is a really good piece of software. As it happened the software turned out to be just like the Roland TR drum machine. So like the TR-606 and like the the TB-303 bass machine in the way that you programmed. Um, And it it was what you guys would know as a tracker, but on its side from left to right. So so it it was a horizontal tracker with, with three channels. And you literally just programmed the thing like a drum machine with 16... Uh, 16 space grids and that was a pattern and then once you'd kind of written that pattern you scroll to the right and there was the next pattern and you program that one and uh, there was the ability to 
loop back to a pattern and reuse the same pattern again. That was very important from the point of view of saving memory because you obviously you couldn't have infinite memory for writing the music for a game uh, with only 64k available in in total but that was that was the piece of software that the light bulbs all came on and it was like right here we go you can do pitch pens you can add portamento you can you can add vibrato you can do all these effects that i'd heard by then i'd obviously heard of and was aware of people like rob hubbard and, and martin galway um maybe not ben douglish so much but um but fire lord that, that, that was one of my favorite pieces of music in a game so although i wasn't aware at that time of, uh, of ben douglish as a as a person the music i was aware of absolutely and the other happenstance was that the guy i was chatting to turns out to be a guy called paulie hughes <laughs> and paulie hughes got into ocean before i got into ocean and and was instrumental in getting me into ocean so he he kind of changed my life in two ways um just by bumping into him and uh, and chatting to him so that's kind of what what blue chip was all about and how blue chip was kind of a uh, instrumental in 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 me changing direction being able to suddenly write proper good music on the commodore 64 and a little further down the line it got me into ocean they were so kind of important those independent stores we've had so many guests talk about you know the store that they kind of went to and you know bumped into people and then made connections and then kind of got them into the industry um do do you think those independent stores were were a really special thing and uh you know Um, we're kind of missing them nowadays yeah but don't don't you think that's true of all the independent when you look at any town center nowadays they're all absolutely the same i can remember as a as a a teenager living in chorley and getting on the bus to come to blackburn to come to blackburn record exchange in the days of vinyl where basically they sold new albums, but they would also take your old albums and they would give you credit against other exchanged albums. And it it was the only store anywhere in the area that did anything like that. Um, and it allowed me on very, very limited funds as a, as a kind of 15, 16 year old to get access to a lot more music on, on vinyl than I ever would have been able to uh, just buying new albums well there was another format um for kind of distributing music and that was in the demo scene did you um hear any like amazing demo tunes like i know maniacs and noise did some like really mad routines and stuff the i think that the 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 weird thing about me probably compared to all the sid composers is that i literally dropped into it in 1986 and then dropped out of it again at the end of it was kind of at the beginning of 86 and then at the end of 87 or you know kind of september of 80 i dropped out of it again and a lot of that is due to the way the, the way that i thought and considered the the kind of industry and the and certainly the music um at that time i i don't i didn't believe that that the music had any kind of longevity whatsoever. I, I'm sure it's true of a lot of a lot of other Sid musicians, if they can kind of think back to their feelings at the time. It was 
uh, initially, obviously, compu- home computers came along and it was, oh, yes, it's a fad. It'll last 12 months. It'll be two years and then it'll be gone and we'll move on to something else. And nobody, I, I think, um, certainly from a, a home perspective, envisaged where we would be today. It, it really was almost like a toy, a newfangled toy, and it would just come and it would go in, it would go and something else would come along. And I think I felt the same way about the music. It was just literally a job that you did. The music would be um, out there probably for six months, maybe 12 at the most, and then it would be bargain bin, and then it would be in the real bin. Um, and, and, that, and that was kind of the, my thought process. And I think, you know, we've had a lot of people on who've said similarly, you know, the fact that they, they weren't sure how long the industry was going to be around for. And, you know, a lot of people's parents back then would be like, when are you going to get a proper job there? Yeah, you know, yeah, they didn't absolutely. see any longevity in it. Yeah. So, I, that, I mean, it's very true. It's, it's, I mean, when I saw, when I went, actually went to work at Ocean and suddenly you were kind of earning a monthly, a monthly salary and looked at what was going on inside Ocean versus any other workplace on the planet. I suppose it was the same in the, whatever software company you were working for in those days. But, uh, I mean, it, it certainly focused me on the fact that it wasn't like working for any other kind of company. They were, people were sitting around, sitting back in their chairs, picking their noses, and they'd go off and have a play on the computer games, and somebody go out for a smoke, and then they'd come back in, and then have another sit around, maybe go make a cup of coffee, then go down the corridor, have a chinwag with another programmer. And you kind of looked at the activity that went on in there. This just wouldn't be tolerated in any, in any formal production company of any kind there would be targets you'd have to uh, you'd have to not only be working but be seen to be working in a diligent fashion not kind of lying back in your chair with your your top wide open and a cup of coffee there on the desk <laughs> and, you know and just kind of lazing back almost like you're on holiday or that was the impression at least obviously some phenomenal things came out of ocean so clearly somebody did some work at some point obviously to produce the games uh, that, that they did over the period of time that they were that they were in existence. Well, you mentioned about, you know, meeting Paul Hughes um, at Blue Chip. And so tell us your journey then to Ocean. How did you go from, you know, hanging out with him to getting a job there and working there? So um, initially what happened, um, Paulie picked up a job to do a conversion from the BBC Micro to the C64 of a game called Repton 3 and had, I mean, did a sterling job of all of the coding, but the BBC never did, didn't have any music. It ne- never had a soundtrack to it, and so he said to me, "How do you fancy writing a song or writing a you know a piece of music for for Repton Three for the for the title screen?" And I said, "Yeah, no problem at all. I'll do that." And away I went, and and kind of, I think about four or five days later, I went back to to Paul's house, um, and up we went into his bedroom, and he loaded it up. He's brilliant, yeah. yeah. And then he says, we need two tunes. Um, so it's like, right, okay, I've only made one. It goes in the deadlines tomorrow. So one of the tunes took four or five days to polish and to write, and the other one took about 45 minutes um, on Electrosound. And that was kind of the first, that was the first little job that any money came, was forthcoming for. Um, and he was good, and he split the money with me, and he, you know, he kind of kept seventy-five percent for himself for all the all the coding, and gave me twenty-five percent uh, for writing the music, which was generous. 
And we then moved on. He got another job from Elite to do the music for Scooby-Doo on the 64. Um, so we, again, well, I mean, it was a fairly straightforward thing. It was pretty obvious it was going to be the Scooby-Doo tune. It couldn't be anything else. And wrote it and also wrote a high score tune for it and then went to Paul's. And it was like, brilliant, I'll put it in. Uh, and then when he went to Elite, Elite said, yes, we need we needed um, sound effects as well. And you haven't produced them, so we're not going to pay you. So to this day, Elite Software owe Paul Hughes and myself 200 quid for a, a, a bit of, what should we call it, a bit of sharkery. At, right. the, uh, at the last minute by telling us they needed that. From that, Paulie Hughes went uh, to visit Dave Collier, who he's loosely related to. And Dave Collier said, would you like to have a walk around Ocean and have a look at it? And he said, yeah, yeah I would. Um, and Paulie had a walk around, and I think he made, what should we say, impressive enough comments about the things that Dave was working on and the code that he was writing that Dave kind of scuttled upstairs and said to to Gary Bracey straight away, hire this guy, you need to give him a job. And so Paulie got hired. Now, in in the time leading up to that, Paulie and I had produced a demo disc of sorts with some very clever graphics on it that he'd programmed and and three or four of my SID tunes on it. And via that, demo disc he'd introduced me to software creations in manchester and richard k and i do i was done just the first i can't remember i'm trying to think what what it would have been the initial job that i did for him it was nothing particularly uh prestigious um it would just literally be a b title but i'd kind of done a done a job for him um so paulie i'm i'm working for software creations on a freelance basis and paulie's employed by ocean software and then came controversy <laughs> um of sorts so paulie said to me look your tune that tune one on the disc ocean want to use it on uh double take and i said oh, there's a problem i said i've already promised it to richard k for, for a game called mission of mercy and he's using it on that and paulie said oh okay then and then i was in wigan a couple of weeks later and double take in Woolworths was scrolling to the game was on about five or six different 12 inch color monitors and scroll this credits are scrolling across the bottom of the screen and across the bottom of the screen comes music by Paul Hughes but it's but it's my it's my mission of mercy double take tune so you can imagine the thoughts that went through my head I think uh, your jaw dropped in it uh, yeah I mean it was kind of a, a kind of a, what has what has my friend done to me and there was also the fact that I was progressing uh, a high score tune and sound effects for the Mission of Mercy game for Richard K. So there was this whoopsie, what we're going to do now. And I stewed for two or three days uh, and decided what it what it was I would do. And I just thought the only way to do to hit this is absolutely head on is to take the Electrosound source discs in hand and go to Ocean and confront them. And literally, and if Paulie was innocent then he would be fine but if he had tried any underhandedness then unfortunately he would get possibly burned because of it but i was so angry about it um i i i kind of went 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 to ocean um and, and confronted them so what seemed like it was probably another day or so but it seemed 
almost instantly, there I am on the train to Manchester, source discs in hand, angry, but also thinking about, I, was, I mean, it, even though I was 28, it was kind of right. I've got to stand up probably in front of the CEO of Ocean or somebody similar and confront them and just say, you've used my intellectual property without my property. Uh, I'm, I'm seriously upset about it. And what are you going to do? So the guy that I actually ended up standing in front of and, and speaking to was a guy called Colin Stokes, um, who at the time was the chief, I think he was the chief operating officer at the time. And initially he tried to kind of bully me a little bit and, and, and tough it out. And Do you realise what had happened if we, we took you to court? You'd never have a chance. And I'm just like, look, this is what's happened. You've used my intellectual property without my permission software creations down the road have already got a promise from me for this music. So I'm going to be £1,200 out of pocket because of losing losing that. And you think you're going to walk away without at least you know remunerating me in some way um, for using my intellectual property. So lo and behold, his first offer was, well, how do you feel about having a job with Ocean? And his second, and his second offer was, I will pay you the twelve hundred pounds for the Sid for the Sid track. Um, what do you think? <laughs> I think it was about a tenth of a second. Uh, let me just, yes, I'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> wow! So it was this kind of <laughs> trying to be all cool about it, but it was probably only about half a second of making the decision. Um, yeah, of course I'm going to come and work for Ocean. Who wouldn't come and work for Ocean? And so that's kind of how. I got in through the door. There's a couple of bits that follow on from that. Um, and there were a couple of things that I didn't I didn't know at the time. What Colin Stokes did, which I feel was underhand, at the time that Double Take was being released by Ocean, um, it was the end of sort of a short crunch. And they were really urgent to get it out through the door. And it wasn't either poorly or... Uh, the other name will come to me shortly, Colin Porch, who he was working with. It wasn't either of them that wrote the credits routine. It was somebody else entirely that wrote the credits routine. And they just assumed that it was Paul's music. Right. Uh, and the game got released. But what Colin Stokes did, the chief operating officer, was he made Paul pay the £1,200 back out of his wages for the payment that they'd made to me. Um, and that in the big scale, that makes me very unhappy because it was kind of my friend and he, he got stiffed yeah. um, for something that wasn't really his fault. Um, it, it caused us to kind of be distant with each other probably for about 12 months. I mean, we did make it up, and, and but it, it took another, literally another probably 15 years before we were emailing each other and he told me that. And I found out kind of the true version of what had gone on um, when I'd got into Ocean. But yeah, that, that's the kind of pathway into into Ocean software. Well, I, I, I remember you doing uh, stuff with Repton as well, which was a, a huge kind of hit with, the, with with Acorn gamers as well. And that was that was superior software. Was that like externally hiring Ocean then to do the music? No, no, not at all. At the time that Paul did that, um, he was still... Uh, a free agent he was he hadn't been hired by anybody he was submitting his very very clever code or, or demos of it 
um, left, right, and centre to, to to you know every which software company he could, but he hadn't been grabbed at that point. But I think what I mean once he got into Ocean, he really, really flourished. Uh, I mean Paul is the guy who wrote Novaload um, initially, so he's a very clever programmer. He thinks sideways um, about issues and often backwards <laughs> about stuff to come up with the right result. Well, I mean, you've got into Ocean then via this uh, very unusual route. So uh, let's talk a bit about working there then. Mm. I mean, when they give you kind of the briefs for games and you were told you're going to work, you know, do the soundtrack for a certain game, did they give you much idea then on how they wanted it to sound? How did that kind of process work? If anything, I think at the time, I, I, I was kind of aware of film music and how atmospheric soundtracks were to films and how in keeping with the film the music was and sometimes how non-intrusive the music is within a movie but still without it it, it you know the film would lose 50 percent of its of its impact on you emotionally and so i was aware of that uh, and so it was me probably asking more questions at the time so you know when when kind of head over heels came along it was well. What is it? How does you know? What's the kind of atmosphere of the game? And I and I spoke a lot, and I and I would wander off from the music room and, and up the corridor around the corner and go and talk to the programmers and talk to the graphic artists. What does it look like? You know, and they'd show me early screenshots and early sprites and things. And it all of it gives you a gives you a feel um, of, of what you should be doing. For uh, another another observation of the time. Uh, is is that so many of as good as the as the Sid soundtracks were as good as the Sid music was, so many of the Sid tunes had absolutely nothing to do with the game. Uh, in the sense yeah. that, in the sense that, if you closed your eyes and someone played you a Sid tune and said, "Right, tell me about the game," <laughs> just from listening to the music, you, you'd never get anywhere near it. Um, you know, you'd literally be guessing, but there are along the way, there are certain Sid tunes which I would call soundtracks. Probably one of the very earliest games that impacted me in a massive way was Forbidden Forest, and and the the music to Forbidden Forest, just the effects and everything. Um, I mean, it was it was underwear change time if you were quite young playing that game. Um, it was seriously scary. Was, was was Forbidden Forest, and what made it scary was the, was the music, um, very much representative of, of the kind of game that it was, uh, and that wasn't lost on me in terms of the music that I wrote for for games. Um, I don't. I think a lot of people just wrote Sid music and just absolutely took all the restraints off and just wrote what they wanted to and then software companies possibly heard the music and said we'll take that piece we'll take that piece rather than in the ocean in-house way of developing music to a brief it's strange martin and i have met again very recently uh, earlier this year um and spoken kind of 35 years later about all what all the things that went on when we were together in the in the single room working together. But at the time, I one of the criticisms I would level at Martin Galway's music was that it wasn't always representative of the game that it was included in. There are some 
huge exceptions to that. Rambo is is definitely one of those. Um, and he's certainly produced music that sits very, very well in some games. But others, uh, again, it's that, it's that acid test of if I sat you down um, with just a set of headphones on and said, listen to this, right, tell me what the game is, you, you'd have no clue literally from listening to the music. Well, how important was the uh, Commodore 128 to the actual development of the C64 tunes? What was this kind of epic setup that they had at Ocean? So the 128 in itself was, uh, that was the means to the end. Um, obviously the C64 and the SID chip were the, were, were the, were the key things that you were um, looking to exploit in the worst ways possible and get you know um, a, a, as much out of it as you possibly could the ocean development system as it was called was quite a little bit ahead of its time because it involved you in 1986 sitting at a desk and working on two computers at once so you can add the commodore 128 with the ocean assembler within which you wrote all your source code for the music um, for the game that you were working on. But at the time that you sort of hit the assemble button, uh, rather than assemble it all in the 128, it went down a sync cable uh, into a Commodore 64 and the music played back in the Commodore 64. The big, big benefit of that is if you made a, a boo-boo in your code, um, which I did more times than I care to remember, the C64 would crash. But your source code was safe in the Commodore 128. You just hit, oh, the nice. reset, hit the reset button on the 64. Go and fix your code accordingly um, and try again. And it was a really, really good system where you were saving your work on floppy disk every night before you went home. At the point, you know, the points where you were working during the day, the source code was never in danger uh, because it was a totally different machine that was playing back uh, the soundtrack. Well, you, you mentioned you and Martin Galway were in a really small little room. Um, what what was the equipment set up like? And did you, I, I know some people at Cygnosis had to bring their own equipment in. So um, right. did they provide you with a lot of the stuff? Uh, and did you have mixers and stuff like that? No, absolutely not. Uh, we, we had something akin to a, a Yamaha PSR keyboard. Um, it's 50% of the way across the room. Uh, and we sat back to back at opposite ends of an oblong room, which was probably about twenty feet in length and probably <laughs> and probably about six feet in depth. And one whole twenty foot wall was was glass with a door in it, and the other three walls were brick. And it and it was it was claustrophobic to work in, but it was kind of a you just you tolerated it and just got on with it. Because it was ocean, you were working at ocean, um, uh, uh, and you had a job to do. So, so you know, I mean, they didn't even think as far as headphones. I mean, so I you don't... were just blasting it. In oh this yeah, tiny absolutely. room. Com yeah. Oh, completely, completely. I mean, Martin knows this. I've said it to him. So I'm not saying anything that's um, that, that that's behind his back or underhanded. But the the, the guy drove me mental when he was doing. Uh, parallax on the C64. So the opening bars of parallax are very weird pitch pens. Where it's sort of da, 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 da. But all the notes all, all bend down and back up again and a lot higher than, than the notes I've just uh, 
<laughs> just voice there. So he was an absolute pedantic perfectionist in terms of the stuff that he wrote. And so he would tweak one tiny little bit, reassemble it, play it back, do another tweak, reassemble it, play it back. So if you can imagine hearing those opening bars of Parallax 150 times in an eight-hour day, all only with the, the slightest tweak between them. By the time you kind of get to five o'clock at its home time, I was up the wall and nearly in the ceiling. Um, <laughs> Having just, nightmares about oh, that. <laughs> just, it was Japanese water torture. Um, <laughs> just literally this tune being dripped on my ears 150 times. Um, I think a lot of the reason why I'm maybe maybe a little unappreciative of some of Martin's pieces is because of that process is because of that you, know, you can you know, if you play one part of a song over and over and over and over to somebody else you can drive them insane and I think that I suspect that's probably why um I, I kind of I'm I, I'm unappreciative of some of Martin I think the feeling was mutual to be fair I was 28 and he was 19 so we were about you know roughly a decade apart in terms of our musical taste and I kind of my musical appreciation kind of kicks in at the end of the 60s I was born in 1958 so at the end kind of towards the end of the 60s the beginning of the 70s was the era that probably influenced me the most Mm. and and quite a lot of the 80s but Martin was was totally and utterly nothing I, I suspect nothing before 1980 Jean-Michel Jarre he was he was absolutely freakish about but most electronic music uh, he he was into I'm, I'm not saying that that was there were other things that he was into as well but he was very very heavily into electronic music um, and I think me coming from the kind of 70s which is more sort of guitars basses electric pianos and that kind of soundscape a lot of the stuff and the, the melodies and the other things that I wrote, he was really quite critical of. Right. <laughs> um, Different tastes. Oh, totally. Yeah. To be fair, that's kind of the story behind, I have told this story before, but it's kind of the story behind Ocean Loader 3. Mm. Um, when I first went to Ocean, Gary Bracey sort of said to him, right, teach him what he needs to do, and then I'm going to give him some work. And as a teacher, as a tutor of what he saw as his music driver, in my humble opinion, he was he was less than generous in terms of the, the teachings and the tutorings. Paulie Hughes was still not talking to me at that point um, for, the, for the, the reasons we'd stated earlier. And so it was really just a case of rumbling my way through the driver and working out what the driver was actually doing and then understanding a lot of what to do with it. There was this, this, and, and I'm got, I'm got to caveat this. Martin was young; he was eighteen, nineteen. I know for a fact that some of the choices he made last back there wouldn't be the choices that he would make again now at the age he is now. But as an eighteen, nineteen-year-old, he was kind of talking, whispering behind my back, and saying different things to different people about me. And I knew that the the, the right way wasn't to confront him head on, and kind of put him up against the wall and say, "Oh, you." But I needed to, I needed to kind of address this in a different way, and I simply thought, right, at this point in time, 
the thing that he's most well known for are the are the two ocean loaders. So if I can put something together that then replaces those ocean loaders, that basically stamps on them and says this is good music, that's probably the best way um, to deal with the situation, and that's precisely what I did with a lot of <laughs> misgivings along the way about, oh, it's, is it good enough? And working and developing it and, uh, and really kind of doing my very best work on it. But I took it into Ocean, uh, played it to a few people, who then kind of called Gary Bracey down and said, listen to this, listen to this. I played it back. Um, and it replaced, it well, it became the Ocean Loader on all full-price titles for 12 months. And literally until Jonathan Dunn wrote the fourth version. You know, I'm curious about the industry in terms of um, kind of how, how glamorous it was back then. Because, I mean, I remember, you know, obviously Imagine Software were kind of the, uh, you know, the poster childs for that, you know, the, sure. um, the extravagance that happened there. I mean, was it, you know, without prying and getting too personal, what was was the pay good? Did you get royalties for the songs or was it kind of a one-off payment? Uh, was it like we saw in the magazines? Was, was everyone like, you know, rich kids? No, not at all. I, I mean, you were, you were literally just employed. I made more money on the freelance work that I did than I ever made um, in terms of, a month. So I, on one freelance job, I could make more money than I earned in a month at Ocean. Mm-hmm. But that said, the beauty of working at Ocean was that money was every month. You were paid on the month every month. And so in terms of job security, working working in-house at Ocean and being employed by them, as with working for any company, it provides you with a degree of security um, and you can obviously open a bank account and um, have things um, because you've got a regular steady income coming in. I've never kind of been afraid of working freelance. It's true, I mean, with working in bands. Bands are never employed people. You're always out there on your own. You're working independently from gig to gig and you're picking the fees up. Even, I was very, very lucky in 1986. I was in a band that got onto a talent show on TV and it was a network talent show that went out at six o'clock on Saturday night. So it was prime time all over the country. Uh, and I went on it with the band I was in and we won for three weeks. And here's how ridiculous it is. So for a, for a four-piece comedy band, which in 1986, in January of 1986, would have gone and done a normal standard gig in a social club for around about £350. Um, which you would then pay an agent 20% and you would divide, you know, subtract your, your costs and divide the rest between you. Literally overnight from winning on that first week, gigs were appearing in the diary, £2,500, £3,000, £3,250. And that carried on for around about, I don't know, until about August, September of that year. Wow. Um so the difference between being current on TV and just being kind of a journeyman band who goes around and sort of, you sort of gig from place to place, um, the money is almost tenfold. Let's talk about some of your kind of titles as well, because um, you've talked about the Ocean Loader, which was absolutely awesome. Um, what about Head Over Heels as well? How, how was that? And uh, that, that got really 
good acclaim everywhere. It did, uh, didn't it? Yeah. Um, and to be fair, there's probably not one piece of original composition in that. So it's a, it's a piece of classical music on the title screen. And the snippets and the effects that are within the game um, are all lifts from traditional songs, just played with a little bit. But it suited the game. It seemed to suit, again, it's going back to this thing about what suits the game. Uh, and it seemed to suit the game to a T. So the 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 composition, I, I do play with the chords a little bit. I've definitely taken some artistic license uh, in certain places with the chords within it. But it, it yeah, it was just, it, I just happened to, to be listening to that piece of music and thinking, do you know what? This this would absolutely, you know, kind of happy, give it more of a happy place, and this would suit this game to a T. Um, was it also kind of hard to do the effects as well at the same time as doing the music and getting them to kind of work together and integrate? Um, I, I, I think that the, the thing with effects for the kind, it's quite a jolly game. I know there's some pretty gruesome endings in it. <laughs> if you, if you yeah. wait, wait on face value, being squashed and being, uh, you know, you're kind of mutilated. But overall, it's kind of a happy place game. It's a jolly little game of sort of head and heels, the two characters who have to work together to, to complete the game. It, it already, uh, I mean, it came from the spectrum. Uh, originally uh, as is clear if you look at the graphics within it but i mean it was a it, I, for some reason it was just an absolute hit with zap 64 and once it was a hit with zap 64 i think everybody else pretty much liked it uh, from from a from a magazine point of view and i think it was i think it was zap's first gold medal of that year so so yeah i mean it was it was once that was released by ocean and then I kind of rushed out, bought a zap and read the review. And, you know, the sigh of relief went, Phew! you kind of go, right, I've arrived, I've landed. Um, I, I've got something to hang my hat on now to go forward into other projects. You know, speaking of uh, jolly games as well, um, how did you approach Bubble Bobble? Because obviously that was different being a, an existing arcade title. Yeah. Did you get like an, an arcade unit to work on and, you know, kind of copy the, the music? Or how did that kind of work then? Did, did you get any influence from Taita? And did they uh, send you an arcade unit? <laughs> well, there was there was a bubble bobble machine uh, in the offices at Software Creations in Manchester. And they'd got the title from Firebird, who in turn had obviously got the full license for everything, for the, for the game, for the graphics, for the music from Taito. The one thing I knew was that it was it was an absolutely huge project for software creations this was the biggest thing that they'd undertaken and the, if it was a flop it would have been very detrimental to them getting anything else significant going forward because they were just a small outfit in manchester steve ruddy who programmed the c64 version uh, even paul hughes kind of does a we are not worthy to steve ruddy <laughs> as a programmer uh, he really rates him thinks he's a very very good programmer um once Richard Kay had sort of nervously given me this brief, it must be this, it, 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 we've got to do it, we've got, all of which was just his own, uh, I suspect, internal anguish about coming up with something that was really, really good. I knew it needed to be as close to the arcade game as possible. So having the music, because obviously there was, there was no Tinternet back then, we couldn't we couldn't just log on to YouTube and listen to all the, the bubble bubble tunes. I ended up recording from 
the arcade machine on a cassette recorder. I got somebody to play it and switch to the different parts so that I could record the different tunes. The tune that everybody knows, which is kind of the in-game tune, is pretty straightforward. It's only literally just three, three, three chords in the main with an odd fourth chord. So very straightforward. But some of the other tunes are a little bit more uh, complex. But cassette recorder was the order of the day to kind of capture the, the arcade tunes. And then off I went home uh, and, and literally just tried to make this thing as close timing-wise in the music and feel-wise, while still giving it the Sid's signature, if you will. But it was very, very important to stick to the original. Um, no artistic license whatsoever um, required or allowed. And it's probably... the the piece of music or the, the set of music that I've worked the longest on as a project. I think it was just over three months from start to finish, um, which is longer than I ever spent on anything else in terms of Sydney music. Well, I mean, you mentioned earlier that, you know, your time in the industry was quite short, mm. um, but, you know, you worked on these incredible titles and obviously a great time to be in the industry. I mean, you know, very big era of change, particularly in British gaming. Kind of moving into more recent years, obviously we're going to talk about your new album in just a moment, but tell us about this process of remixing Commodore 64 tunes and video game music. What made you want to revisit them and how did that kind of process start then? Uh, it's <laughs> bad behaviour repeating itself, I think, <laughs> overall. <laughs> um, that thing with the Commodore 64, I've listened to some of the, the accompanying tunes to the games and thinking... What a lot of rubbish. I can do better than that. One of the bands that I was playing in uh, I kind of wound up in uh, 2010-ish. And I was bereft of an outlet for my musical habit, for my addiction, for my, my drug addiction to music. I, I had no outlet for it. And earlier, a few years earlier, Rich, um, Chris Abbott had contacted me about, back in time, the original album, and he wanted to use... Uh, Ocean Lord of Three on it and we talked and I said yep no problem at all he did a remix of it and I had a contract and he, he do our royalties and so uh, and he'd made me aware of Remix 64 or he'd made me aware sorry wrong he hadn't made me aware of Remix 64 he'd made me aware of the scene and so kind of 12 years later from 1998 when that came out 12 years later I'm, I'm sort of looking for an outlet and I thought oh, I wonder about this remixing thing this scene and obviously googled it and there you go there's remix 64 and it's like hey there's some uh, and you know there's some seriously impressive tunes on here and also there's some not that impressive tunes on here and it's that old big-headed i could do better than this so i at that time uh 2010 2011 i was very very familiar with using uh, midi into computers and the Kind of VSTs at the time um, were very rudimentary uh, versus what we have today. And, and a lot of the sounds, when you played them back, weren't that convincing. But you were, we were kind of at the stage of, uh, of decent DAWs um, that you could work in, and you could mix up VSTs with MIDI instruments. I had a couple of sets of keyboards, um, I also had the ability to record guitar if I wanted to do it, whether electric or acoustic. And it was like, well, 
yeah, let's have a crack at this. I've not got a band on the go at the moment. Let's have a crack at this. So 2011, I got the newcomer, <laughs> newcomer award <laughs> on Remix 64, uh, which is kind of ironic and humorous. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, but, but well, you know, appreciated nevertheless. Did a little bit for about two or three years with Remix 64 and then ended up without a band again for a while. Oh, sorry, ended up in a, in a band for a while. So wasn't that active then up to about 2017. Then did a little bit more in 2017. And then from about 2019 onwards, um, or 2018, 2019, I've been far more active um, and kind of despite being in bands. Um, I'm, I, I'm trying to be as active as I can be in, in the remix scene as well. But it's effective. If you want a definition, it's taking three voice tunes from, in terms of Remix 64, who are specifically about C64 music. There's also Amiga Remix, which is all about Amiga Remix and Amiga tunes. But from a C64 point of view, Remix 64, um, you upload full-blown arrangements of those original three voice tunes from the c64 in 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 the kind of 80s and the early 90s anything is allowed to be uploaded as a remix so long as it exists in hvsc which is the high voltage sig collection and even now that, that i mean that's still quite actively updated roughly every six months to add new sids to it people are still making sid music i mean i know you and i dan Prior to this interview, spoke about Thomas Danko. Thomas is yeah. still very active in writing Sid music for the demo scene, and so new Sid tunes are coming along all the time, which are be and obviously uh, they're being included in HVSC and anything which exists in there, which is sort of the bible of Commodore 64 music. You can choose that tune and say, right, I'm going to take that and I'm going to do a full-blown orchestral version of that particular tune. I'm going to do a complete thrash metal version of it. Or or in the case of Bubble Bobble, on the new album, we were constantly looking for new genres so that the album would be very diverse in terms of the, the styles and the genres of tunes from start to finish. And one of the genres... Um, which has always affectionately been known as the devil's music in the bands that I've played in. Um, w- I did a country and western version of of bubble bobble, so we're with <laughs> fiddles and and, and and pedal steels uh, and a lead guitar in it. And yeah, I mean, it came. It actually came out. I thought I don't, I don't know how well this will come out, but it actually came out really, really well. But I've kind of evolved in terms of music and computer music. I've evolved outside of the scenes, either seeing the Amiga scene or the C64 scene quite a lot, just by being in bands and just following and keeping up to date with the technology that exists now. And then going back into the scene and applying that along with the musical knowledge that I've kind of gathered over 40 years of of, of sort of playing in bands, 40 years plus of being in bands. Well, you did mention then the new album. Um, this is Encore 64. It is. It comes out at the end of this month. Uh, 26th of January, it's going to be available, um, encore64.com. So tell us a bit about this project and who's involved then and what's kind of the idea. Okay, of so um, at the beginning of last year, around Christmas time, two or three of us that are actually on the album were, in, were communicating on, on a different matter. We were talking about something else. And I 
And then a fourth person came along and I just thought to myself, and a fifth person came along and I just thought, do you know what? These guys, they've got such big reputations. I wonder, I wonder if we could do an album together. And I just pitched the idea. And as you do initially, expecting a lot of umming and ahhing. But, it, but it, to be fair, uh, Danko and, and Boz, Alistair Bones, both absolutely leapt at the idea and said, yep, yep, we'll do it, we'll do it. Uh, and so this idea was born for doing an album. Uh, and we'd initially said thought that we would just do it with the three of us and we would cover whatever we wanted to cover across a wide range of not just game tunes but good demo tunes as well. And we would pick styles that we wanted to pick for different tunes. Circumstances changed. Boz wasn't able to continue. Uh, and I said to Thomas Danko, we need to, let's get some guests on here. Let's get some different people on here. And so I approached Fred Gray, Matthew Cannon, Glenar Brown, and thought, there's three really good names. And the other thing we kind of had was three ex-Ocean guys on there as well, um, with, with Fred and with Matthew. Again, circumstances dictated that Matthew couldn't continue with it and, and, and dropped out. And then Thomas Danko said, I know who we can get that will absolutely want to do this with us. Uh, and he spoke to Romeo Knight, and he spoke to Vincenzo. Um, and there again, they both leapt at the idea. Uh, and so we ended up with, with Peter Clark, Thomas Danko, Glynar Brown, Fred Gray, Romeo Knight, and Vincenzo. And Great then asked, yeah, I, I mean, all of them names that, that, that within either the C64 community or the Amiga community are, no, are known names. And I'd also been working with uh, a guy called Barry, who lives up in South Shields. Um, I chatted with him. They'd invited me into their little chat group about 12 months ago um, as a guest, and I just never left. <laughs> I just kept going back every, every whichever uh, Saturday of the month it was. I just kept going back. But, I mean, not not like a, a bad smell. I mean, I think they were quite happy to have me in the in the chat. But along the way, Barry had kind of said, I really want to get back into remixing. And the guy had done two remixes at the beginning of the century and on a, on a PS1, would you believe, um, of all things. Wow. So he programmed the music using a controller on a PS1. <laughs> um, and and he, did, he did Knuckle Busters by Rob Hubbard, which is just, it's a ridiculously long tune, like about 11 minutes, 13 minutes or something. Uh, it's ridiculously long. And I just thought to myself, well, anyone that's got the staying power to program something like that uh, probably won't give up easily. So I got him off Fruity Loops and on to Reaper, which is a horizontal DAW. We gathered free free VST, well, free sample packs and VSTs so that he could have some, some kind of palette to paint with. Uh, and then we started work. And I've worked with him and worked with him and worked with him. And he's become really, really good. And then it was actually Danko that turned around and said to me, he said, why don't you, why don't you get Tomsk, which is Barry's handle? Why don't you get Tomsk on, on the, on the album? And I was like, well, I know he's working on a track to, to upload to Remix 64. Let me have, let me speak to him. And he was very nervous. He didn't want to, and he ummed and ahed, but eventually came on board. And the track is a triumph. It's an absolutely brilliant track. He's covered uh, Fourth Protocol, which was originally written by David Dunn, who's now Julie Dunn. And uh, it, it was written as a hymn by uh, Julie. 
um, for school. And Tom's just taken it and injected some real melodrama into it, some some, some real feeling into it, uh, and it's a superb track. So that he kind of he's kind of the seventh, the seventh member of the team, if you will. And I love the fact that I mean, people can go to the website now, um, Encore64.com, and you can go through and have have a listen to yourself. And you've actually been kind enough to put together a little montage. That I'm going to play out at the end of the show um, so people can get a flavour for it. But there's so much in there. Like, you know, you've got progressive rock and there's synth wave and retro wave kind of sounds and folk and country and house kind of tracks as well. So these are songs you get, a lot of them you're going to recognise, but in a completely different way. So I think, you know, you guys have done an incredible job from what I've heard so far. And um, you can name your own price as well when the download becomes available at the, the end of the month. Yep, yeah, it's it's kind of a nine euro minimum, but you can pay what you want. Yep. Um, the, the essence of the album for, for for various reasons was that it would be totally independent from start to finish so the people who are involved in the project would do everything um and the only inclusion in in the team um, who i must mention um who isn't a musician um is the sarge um of fairlight uh and he did he agreed to do the artwork for us for the album but he's done an incredible job with it the artwork is absolutely superb in my opinion um, it's, it also has transferred very well onto T-shirts um, and stands out on, on, black, on the black T-shirts as well. So that there's kind of the album on the website. If you're someone that likes to kind of have a bit of merch, uh, a T-shirt to, to, to commemorate the album, they're on there as well. There's a bundle that you can buy together. But the, yeah, the, the, the essence of Encore 64 is diversity and and people so so nobody told anybody which tracks to cover everybody picked their own tracks to cover in fairness there are three or four tracks on there that kind of had to be on there because of the people involved but other than that everybody has picked the tracks that they want to do and they've done them in the way that they want to do them so it's a diversity of both artists uh, and it's a diversity of tracks and genres and styles well, Peter, I think it's about time we heard a bit of it. Um, I'm going to play this this montage that you were kind enough to put together for us. But um, just before I play that out, I want to say a big thank you for coming on this week and sharing some of your stories about your time in the industry. It was, you know, some fascinating stuff that we talked about there. And uh, just want to say best of luck with the album as thank well. Thank you very much. And it's been an absolute pleasure. Anytime. time. <laughs>